0: Good morning. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Janine, and this is Get the Funk Out. Standing by to join me at the top of the hour is author Amy E. Herman, and her new book is out called Fixed, How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. Good morning. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show. I was so intrigued by this book and how this came about. Could you share that with the listeners?
1: Sure. The book is called, that was published in December, is called Fixed How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. And I, the way, my job, my company, is based on the work that I do. And I travel around the world teaching leaders across the professional spectrum from the intelligence community, the FBI, police officers, surgeons, nurses, CEOs to enhance their observation, perception, and communication skills by learning to analyze works of art. And in the last five years since my last book was written, I realized everything is broken (laughs) and our paradigms for solving problems have been blown to smithereens. So I've taken the idea of looking at the artist process and looking at works of art and helping to uh, provide a template for solving all kinds of problems.
0: Now, do people kind of scratch their heads going, wait, I don't even like art, or I I struggle with observing abstract art? Like, what are the the things you're hearing about this?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I sort of, I I love the challenges of critics in my readers (laughs) and in my audiences, because I'm not teaching art, per se. I'm not using art substantively. I'm using art as a different set of data. It's the idea, as I mentioned to you, that I think the best things happen on the exit ramp of our comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And by going outside of our comfort zone and saying, you know, I don't look at art every day. I don't even like it. But if I look at it as a new set of data and think about the process of looking at it and separating the objective from the subjective and talking about what I see in an objective manner, maybe there's a way I can connect the dots to the problems in the boardroom or the operating room or at the crime scene. So I'm just providing people with a new set of data Giving their left brains a rest, getting away from the analytics, objectives and and revenue projections. Yes. And engaging their right brain. So when they go back to the left brain, my hope is they'll see things more perceptively and hopefully solutions more perceptively.
0: And it's very interesting. I mean, I'm a firm believer in the arts and the power of creativity. And I think we the timing of this is great. Being that we're in the pandemic, I think we a lot of people have refocused their priorities.
1: Absolutely. We hear about the Great Resignation every day, don't we? Every day. Uh, Every day. And my big question is, okay, all these people are leaving their jobs. Where are they going? What are they doing? And so what I'm trying to do is to give people, call it what you want, a foothold or an anchor to be able to communicate what they're seeing for themselves, for their families, for their work trajectory. You know, I work with CEOs and leaders all the time, and people say, oh, so-and-so's a visionary. So brilliant. I have news. If you can't communicate your vision or your strategies, you're really not so brilliant. Yes. So I use the idea of looking at a work of art and thinking about looking at art as a way to reframe our communications and reframe our perceptions so that not only can we be better communicators of our own intentions, we can be better members of teams and better
0: collaborators. Yes, you have a chapter uh well it says step number one clean your lenses and i love these questions you ask people to think about in analyzing a picture um what did you see what did you think about while you were looking did you see two people or one uh were the statues male or female how did you generate these kinds of questions were these things you thought about
1: well, you know, at the root of what I do, I should get this out there. I am a recovering attorney. <laughs> I'm also an art historian. Okay. And so the the idea in formulating my company was to combine the practical aspects of each of those disciplines, legal analysis and visual analysis to create my company called the Art of Perception. And so much of that line of questioning comes from the law. How mm-hmm. do we question a witness? How do we form questions for a deposition? How do you poll a jury? But I'm Switching out the legal substance and putting art in, what do you see? How would you describe it to me if I couldn't see it? Mm -hmm. So it's the idea of legal analysis and visual analysis to come up with a new model. And let's face it, Janine, everybody's plates are full right now. Nobody needs needs something new to do. So what I want to do is sort of leverage the neoplasticity of our brains and say, you know, if we look at art, you're engaging your brain in a way that that it doesn't respond to other stimuli. And as one of my colleagues says so beautifully, neurons that fire together wire together. So mm-hmm. by merely showing people works of art and engaging their brain in a way like nothing else, and my hope is that they'll return to that neoplasticity when they have problems to solve. Yes. So it's the idea, let's just slip art in where we haven't used it before, and then when you go back to your regular work, you say to yourself, you know, there's a better way to do this.
0: I, I love this because I think a lot of times our activities are passive you know, if we're glued to Netflix or whatever. And we, you know, we have these experiences when we're younger with museums or, you know, we haven't been able to travel. And like, I grew up in New York, so I was going to the museums a lot. And now I would love to go back, you know, and really look at the exhibits as an adult. And I love how you do that. You have us look at a different, with a different lens.
1: Yes. And I have a background like you. I'm based in New York City. And I look at art. You know, people say, oh, I don't know what to do. I come to New York and I go to the Met. What should I look at? Mm-hmm. And I say, you know, the the best exercise that I did with students when I was training as a museum educator is to go into a gallery mm-hmm. instead of worrying about Monet, Manet, Van Gogh, find a work of art that you gravitate to that really compels you, pulls you in and decide, or I say, frankly, which one would you want to take home if you could? Yes. Go to it and analyze what it is about that work of art that draws you to it. Is it the color, the shape, the form, the frame, other people looking at it? And not only do you learn something about yourself, but you're refreshing your own set of critical inquiry without Siri or Alexa because it's your eyes attached to your brain. It doesn't involve Alexa. But later on, if you want to go back and read about Monk or the artist you looked at, that's great. But let's refresh our own sense of critical inquiry first. Let's use our own eyes and our own brain and it's really empowering because, as you said, it gets us out of this passive mode of yes. just looking at things and listening to people, and actively asking questions, which is the real first step in problem solving.
0: Definitely. Okay, so I have to ask, uh, name like one or two of your favorite museums in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I'm gonna I'm gonna push that a little bit and tell you that. You know, The Met, MoMA, and Whitney are, of course, three of my big favorites, and I return to them regularly, yes. not only for inspiration, just to clean my own brain, and yes. I can walk in, stay 20 minutes, and leave. But my real favorite museum in New York City is a little bit of a gem that not too many people about know about. It's in Long Island City. It's called the Noguchi Museum, oh, and it's about. the work of Izamo Noguchi, Japanese-American artist, sculptor, painter, and it's a museum that's indoors and out, and it's just his work in his museum that he put there. And they have other exhibitions, but it is this place, even its location in Long Island City across the river. It's quiet. Amazing. You can think, you can clear your head, and you can look at some of the most stunning sculpture you've ever seen.
0: Uh, there, I, I mean, I miss New York. I, I haven't been back since the end of 2019. And uh, when people can travel, when they want to travel, they feel safe. It's, it's so uh, exhilarating to go into these museums.
1: It is. It is. And you know, but for every person who's exhilarated, there's some people that are intimidated. As a secondary agenda of my program, I want to dismantle those inhibitions. And I want to tell people, you don't need an art background, or an art degree, or even a knowledge of art to either read my book or go into a museum. What you see matters. And just to go and look and leave is just fine. You don't have to know about 19th century French painting or plein air painting or abstract expressionism. Go in and look and see what you like to look at, and it will refresh your sense of inquiry. And And even without a background or love of art, you can find that same exhilaration.
0: Yes. How did you decide to steer, uh, share the story of basketball player uh, Jeremy Lynn? You know, I was looking for
1: problems, uh, the end of my program, where I teach my program, is about connecting the dots mm-hmm. for people. Because, you know, it's great to look at art, but how is this going to affect my life? Yes. And I was looking for situations and antagonistic situations and problems in our own society that everybody's either heard about or could identify with. And, you know, I live in New York City. Basketball's a big thing. Yes. <laughs> the Knicks are a big deal. The Nets are a big deal. Mm-hmm. And this story about Jeremy Lin you know, we've we've been bombarded with cultural appropriation and political correctness. And I have a very strong feeling about political correctness. And I tell my readers and participants, don't worry about political correctness. Worry about correctness. Get it right. Mm. And and the idea of Jeremy Lin, you know, with dreadlocks and, and the idea of how he wears his hair as an Asian man and an Asian basketball player, you know, coming face to face with African-American basketball players, How did they solve the problem? How did he reconcile some of the pushback he got to his hair? Yes. And what kind of dialogue did he engage in? And you know what? They walked away agreeing to disagree, but they de-escalated the situation. And when we have, you know, we live in such a divisive world. So the reason I put the story about Jeremy Lin in is let's give people a means to use their visual intelligence, how they see things and communicate mm-hmm. to de-escalate everyday situations.
0: Definitely. If you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Amy Herman about her latest book, Fixed. came out the end of uh, 2021, correct? That's correct, yeah. Uh, it's called Fixed, How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. Um, I wanted to share while we're talking about him, what, uh, uh, something you put in your book. When we are when we are engaged in a constant study of self, like Lynn, we are better able to diffuse difficult situations and manage difficult people. The better we know our own biases and behaviors, the more effective we'll be at problem solving, crisis averting, and leading others to their greatest potential. I love that.
1: I really believe that, and I, I'm I'm trying not to. I don't want this to sound like a platitude, but one of the other things that I hope will be a big takeaway from my book is that I don't want people to, to think that perfection has to be the enemy of good. You know, sometimes good is just good enough. Yes. Sometimes we just need to solve the, the problem in front of us, and, you know, perfection is aspirational. I'm not saying we shouldn't strive to be the best people that we can, but sometimes just just being good, just doing the best you can mm-hmm. is a really is a great situation, and we can strive For good and not always perfection
0: well that's that's really a good statement to make right now because of how stressful it is especially for Gen Z you know
1: absolutely absolutely and to to go back to what we were just saying about the great resignation you know if people know that they want to leave the situation they're in because they're not happy that's fine and maybe they don't have the ideal answer for what they want to do but Mm -hmm. let good be good enough
0: yes definitely it's funny, um, I've been asked lately to talk about um, what are the keys to success to, to Gen Z? And I, my answer is very simple, there really aren't any. It's being able to fall down and get up repeatedly. You, know? you bet, and being, you know I yeah.
1: devote a whole chapter to that in this book. I talk about the Japanese practice of kintsugi. And what kintsugi is is when Japanese artists who make ceramicists, they make bowls and vases, and inevitably some of them come out cra- cracked and imperfect, and instead of throwing their flawed pottery away, they fill those cracks in with gold and silver and platinum, and the objects become more precious and valuable than had they been perfect. So the idea of making mistakes and falling down—don't sweep it under the rug. Right. Make those mistakes part of the solution and honor the toll. You know, honor yeah. the struggle that you've had. Yes. Move forward and let everybody else see the mistakes you made. And hopefully, they won't make them as well.
0: And I don't feel in life they're really mistakes because life is just nonlinear, and you—you you might. Do something. Decide to to go down a path, and you think, "Oh, what this was a mistake." But it possibly could lead you to something else, or introduce you to new people or experiences.
1: Absolutely. What I say is, let's take mis- let's take the pejorative pejorative out of the word mistake. Why does it have to be a negative thing? Yeah, We're but, human. We make them. Right. We all make them, and nobody's perfect. Yes. And so the idea of of incorporating our mistakes into our everyday. Work and our life and saying, you know what? I did these. I, I made these mistakes. I, I am going to move on, but I'm going to look back
0: to look forward. Yeah, maybe we'll just call it a detour. <laughs> there you go. Love it. A detour. <laughs> Definitely. What else would you like people to know about your book?
1: Well, the first, if I can talk just for a second about my first book, which really Please. lays the ground for my second work yes. book. The first book is called Visual Intelligence: How to uh, shift, shift Your Perspective, Change Your Perspective. Uh, change, shift Your Perspective, Change Your Life. Sorry, I okay. so, no, uh, need another cup of coffee. It's fine. Um, and it lays the groundwork for how we use art to rethink our perception and communication skills. And this book, Fix, is the idea of solving problems. And what I love most about Fix is I started writing about it before the pandemic, having mm. no idea that so much would be broken. Yes. And when somebody came to me five years ago and said, you know, why are all these people from nuns to trauma surgeons to FBI agents and maybe SEALs. why are they all coming to you to look at works of art? I had to think for a minute. And about a day later, I got back to them and I said, I figured it out. It's because everybody has problems. Mm -hmm. Something is broken. And I really wanted to give people a fresh new
0: way to look at their world to help them solve their problems. You know, it's so interesting, too, when you say this, I remember somebody giving me advice one time, I was struggling with, with um, a deadline. And and he, and he said to me, stop thinking. Take the weekend off. Don't think about anything. Don't go on your computer. Nothing. And when you have this diversion, especially with art, mm-hmm. I, feel, I feel like your mind is more open and you're free. You know, it just lifts it, you. You hit the nail
1: on the head. It sets your mind free. Mm-hmm. It really sets your mind free. And to say, I can look at something. And as a cop said to me years ago, there is no substitute for your human eyes attached to your human brain. It can't be replicated with technology. And the ability to look at art and think about it and process it and ask yourself questions, it's a really powerful thing. I, you know, I know the power of art because I'm an art historian, but I dare say most people don't look at art every day or for a living. And all I'm doing is channeling that power of art to give them another tool to solve their problems.
0: Wow. That's amazing. I wanted to ask you, were you always interested in art when you were younger?
1: I was. I always loved looking at pictures. I loved going to museums. But what really, struck, what really brought this all together is finding something that I didn't love, and I didn't love practicing law. Okay. I find, found it confining and too linear. Mm-hmm. And so I often find that knowing what you don't like to do is as important as knowing what you do like to do. So knowing that I didn't like the practice of law, but I loved looking at art, and mm-hmm. here I had gone to law school and I had practiced. And again, it wasn't a mistake. I wouldn't have traded it for anything, but I had to be a little bit more nonlinear in thinking about application and thinking about how I could connect the dots.
0: Yes. And now,
1: looking at art is an absolute, absolutely grounding force in my life. It is my anchor, and it is an absolute joy for me to share what I do That's across the professional spectrum and around the world.
0: No, have you ever had people say, um, don't you want to use your law degree? Because, (laughs) right? Because um, in a sense, you've used the different experiences of your law degree.
1: I have used my law degree in many ways. Yes. But no, I'll be perfectly honest. Uh, Very few people, especially lawyers, have ever said to me, you know, do you want to go back to the courtroom? Mm -hmm. I have found, and what I find particularly gratifying, is that I train judges. I train other lawyers, I train people on the bench, and they wouldn't let me do that if I didn't have a law degree. So being a lawyer has given me an aspect of credibility. You know, art historian, they say, who needs to talk to an art historian? But if I have that law degree, I understand what it is that they do, and I leverage that to make my presentation and my work as relevant and applicable for them as possible. Definitely. So I, I, I am using the law degree just in a very, very different way.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. I, I asked this because I have a, a doctorate in education, and one of my favorite classes was qualitative research, where we had to mm-hmm. do observational research and look at themes and data. And, but mostly I loved when, when we were told, I want you to go to a coffee shop and just sit there and observe, and don't come back and say, I saw a drunk guy. You have to, <laughs> you have to come back and really give data that backs that up. Because you could, it could be something else, correct? You know. What a wonderful
1: exercise. Yes. And, you know, in, inherent, what is baked into that exercise is when you go to the coffee shop and you are watching people, when you go home that night, you're going to watch your family differently. You're going to watch your kids differently. Definitely. You're going to watch your, your dog differently because you're going to not accept, you know, what you see every day. You're going to think differently, not only about what you do see, yes. but what you don't see.
0: I, I want to tell you one more thing though about the class. He made us go into an elevator and face everyone. So instead of looking oh. at the numbers, and you know and that you always face one way and you look at the numbers and people kill time, go in the elevator and face everyone.
1: It is. My son has done that, and it's very unnerving to the people you're facing. It is. Because they don't expect for you to be looking them in the eye. So not only is it unnerving for you to challenge the status quo of the ride in the elevator, but people automatically think, why is that person looking at me? It's a great exercise.
0: Yes. (laughs) One student went in and sang like a silly song that that he had made up, and it was hysterical. It was. Oh, I
1: love it. I love that, Janine. That's fabulous. I know. So, but you know, it's yeah. challenging our status quo in the smallest of ways. You know, when people ask me, how can I continue this when the book is over or when my class is over? Mm-hmm. And I say every day, I want you to notice just one thing that you didn't notice the day before, just one thing. And I tell students, just put it on your phone and just keep a separate note page, just one thing to write down. And when you do that, you're training your brain to broaden your vision. And eventually, your brain takes over and does it automatically. And not only does it enrich what you see, it really changes how you can engage with the world.
0: Yes. You have some incredible pictures in this book. Like, for instance, there's one, the image is called Support by Lorenzo Quinn, 2017. Oh, it's one of my faves. Have you seen that in person? I did not see it in person, but I
1: was lucky enough to go to the location just after it had come down. And I will tell you, it is so profound because, you know, it's a work of art that has no label that's mm-hmm. readily apparent and it's so compelling. I mean it's right there. And as I was in Venice looking at the hotel and for listeners, uh, support is a pair of human hands that was constructed to look like it's holding up a building. They're huge. And the sculpture was to uh, in Venice and yeah. the sculpture was to call attention to climate change yeah. and that Venice is sinking. And you couldn't look at this and not say, Oh my goodness, what is this? This is so compelling yes. and I have been fortunate enough to travel around the world and see so many of the works of art that I've written about, and I find that public sculpture and public art is often the most profound. It's not just relegated to an art museum. It's right there waiting for us to look at it.
0: Yes. It's incredible. I love these pictures. Uh, but do you, were there like a, a list of things you thought, oh, I have a bucket list now. I want to go see this. You know, <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is great. And if I can tell you a quick story, I went yeah. to Paris in October because Christo's last Project Christo died in uh, uh, last spring, Mm -hmm. and his last project was to wrap the Arc de Triomphe. And his studio decided we're going to do it, even though he died. And I went Uh to Paris just to see Christo's last project, and it changed the whole way I see the world. The fact that a Bulgarian man can go to Paris—you don't mess with the Parisians—and wrap the Arc de Triomphe. And I was there as it unwrapped, and it emerged different than it was before and to see art live it just it changed my whole way of looking at my work in my world and I was really fortunate I said COVID be damned yeah. I was safe and masked and I came home and did not get COVID and oh. I'll remember it the rest of my
0: life oh, that is incredible it was amazing I wear a little art de
1: Triomphe around my neck right now all the time to remind me about the power of what I saw
0: that's beautiful I love that this book is also educational. I mean, I don't have a strong art background, but you you can look at this and learn so much.
1: I'm glad to hear that because it's for everybody. It is not a book for people with an art background. You don't need to have one because I love that I work across the professional spectrum and I work with people whose boots are on the ground that may not have art in their lives. And I want to channel that power of art and help them do what they do because I have such a profound respect and admiration for so many of the people that have let me into their lives and that i work with them and show them art so i specifically wrote the book not with the art historian in mind that's beautiful
0: anything else you'd like to leave us with
1: uh i would two things Um, if anybody would like to read more about the work that i do they can go to artfulperception.com. But more importantly, or I'm on social media at Amy Herman AOP, which stands for Art of Perception. But more importantly, I want to leave you with a quote from Henry James. And he said, try to be the person on whom nothing is lost. Mm, And so I want people, the readers of my book and the people in my program, to go out into the world to try to be that person on whom nothing is lost, that can see and engage and hear and perceive better than they used to be. And I hope that it will Uh, enhance their, just their lives, their work, and their engagement with the
0: world. That's beautiful. Congratulations. Uh, We've been speaking with Amy E. Herman, the author of Fixed, How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. If you've missed any part of this conversation, I will have it up uh, within an hour after the show wraps. And the show blog is getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. Thank you so much, Amy.
1: Janine, thanks for having me on the show. It was such a pleasure talking to you.
0: Great talking to you. Congratulations. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Again, if you visit the show blog, you can read more about Amy and her book. That is getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. I am on Instagram at Janine Bernstein, J-A-N-E-A-N-E-B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N. And I'm on Twitter at moms, M-O-M-Z underscore rock. We'll take a little break, and then I have more planned for the second half of the show. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.